Good morning, North Hills. It is indeed a pleasure and a privilege to stand before you this morning and to open the Word of God together as a family. Uh, let us pray as we get started today. Father in heaven, we are humbled to be in your presence, and we are grateful, Lord, to you for the blessings of this life, for the opportunity to gather together with brothers and sisters, to praise you in song, and now to hear a word from you out of your scriptures. God, I ask that you would be with our time of teaching from your word, that you would uh, prevent us from error, or that you would block me from saying anything that would distract from the pure truth of your word. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, as most of you know, we are in the midst of a study in the book of Jude. North Hills endeavors to take scripture systematically, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And just by way of introduction today, I'm going to recap briefly for us what has happened in our first three weeks of study in the book of Jude. Uh, week one, we, we noted that the author of this book is in fact Jude, despite some of the higher critics that might question that. Uh, the internal evidence of Scripture is obvious that, that this person, Jude, was in fact the brother of James, making him the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. We noted in that first week the humility of Jude as he primarily identified himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, and he didn't immediately say that he was the brother of Christ. And we, we noted the, uh, the, the fact that initially Jesus' brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. It was only after his resurrection that they came to understand him for who he was, and that was the Savior of the world. So we were confident in the authorship of Jude. The second week, we endeavored to look at the audience to which Jude was writing. We saw that uh, the, the audience was identified fairly generally. Uh, there was no specific location in mind, uh, at least not in, in the view of Scripture, but it was a, a fairly general epistle to all of those who were called. We went into great lengths to explain what it means to be called by God, what it means to be a believer, or what it means to be one of his elect. In the third week, we moved to the purpose of Jude's writing, and this was last week. We, we saw um, that Jude had a shift in purpose, where initially he desired to write about the common salvation that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, but he ended up, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, calling us to contend for the faith. And it's this issue of contending for the faith that, if you will permit me, I'd like to make a few comments about that. Uh, the idea of contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints um, really has a two-part directive. And this is part of what John got into last week. The first part, of course, is to proclaim the truth, the pure truth of God's word. And secondly, this contending for the faith would oftentimes require us to denounce those who are in error. To, to refute those who teach contrary to what God's word says. In Paul's epistle to Titus, Titus 1.9, we see that elders and elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine also rebuke those who contradict it. So this is a two-part instruction here in contending for the faith. Um, when we proclaim the truth, it's important that we have absolute confidence that the truth we're proclaiming is authoritative. And because we know that the truth that we've been granted is given to us by God, handed down to us by God, we can have absolute assurance in the truth that we hold to. 
it's very difficult to contend for something that you doubt. And we see this, uh, I think, very frequently in our culture today. There's a, uh, a softness toward the Word of God. There's a, uh, a bit of a hesitancy to come out and say, this is true because God's Word says that it's true. God is not merely someone who we deem to be true because his statements are reliable, but God's Word is true by virtue of the fact that God said it. He is the way, the truth, and the life according to Jesus Christ. So we know that the, the faith that we have been delivered that's been handed down to us is reliable and it is worth contending for. Well, the opposite side of that, uh, as we've noted, is that at times we have to denounce false teaching. And we, we even hear this from Jesus in, in Matthew seven fifteen. He tells us, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, as we think about the ravenous wolves around us today, uh, it's, it's very easy for us to identify the major systems of heresy. For example, the cults, such as the, the, the Mormon faith or the, uh, the Jehovah's Witness faith. We, we see those, and we can very easily spot the problems in that. Mormonism teaches a false god, a false Christ, and a false way of salvation, according to Scripture. The Watchtower Society, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, would deny the Trinity, and they would view Jesus as merely a physical manifestation of Michael the Archangel. But there are other groups, too, that, that, we, that are, are obvious to us. For example, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are apostate groups that have deviated from the original teachings of Christianity. In these systems, they've downgraded the gospel with the addition of works to achieve salvation, and they've rebelled against the authority of Scripture by claiming a dual authority with both church tradition and grace, uh, the Word of God. So we, we, we see those, and, and that's pretty obvious. But there are other types of, of heresy that are maybe a little bit more subtle. In other words, they're, they're clothed a little bit more effectively in what would look like Christianity. And, and Paul warns us about these. In fact, we have to be willing to call some of these by name. Uh, Paul, in, in the first in first and second Timothy, he lists, uh, just in these examples, uh, six different teachers Hymenaeus, Alexander, Demas, Phygelus, Hermogenes, Philetus. These were all called out by Paul as examples of men who were teaching error and were to be avoided. And likewise, last week, John named several modern-day false teachers that are to be avoided. People come to mind such as Stephen Furtick with his Little God Theology, or Creflo Dollar, um, a very uh, appropriate name for someone promoting the prosperity gospel. But Joel Osteen also is, is, is a, a sheep in wolf's clothing, sorry, a wolf in sheep's clothing that we should, that we should avoid, that we should um, acknowledge as teaching things that are contrary to Scripture. T.D. Jakes, for example, would have a modalistic understanding of the Trinity that's not in keeping with Scripture. Joyce Myers would claim that Jesus actually suffered in hell and was the first person to be born again. Okay, so these are, these are serious heresies, and I mention these people specifically because within the confines of social media, I have seen every one of these charlatans advocated for and advanced by other Christians. I've seen other Christians quote these purveyors of false doctrine. So if you're doing that, please stop. Uh, it, it matters who you cite. It matters who you point to as, as someone who would carry the gospel. 
even more subtle than, than some of these false teachers would be people who, who might otherwise hold a, a very consistent belief with us. They may affirm all of the core teachings that we would hold to, yet they would claim to get revelation from a source other than Scripture. For example, they would talk about God speaking to them through their feelings, through their impressions, things like that. Or maybe th- there might be those who would redefine the gospel as only being fully realized when we achieve some sense of social equity or social justice, as though that's a part of the gospel and not an effect of the gospel. And then finally, we hear those from time to time who advocate this idea of contemplative prayer. And I know this is a, a fairly popular um, concept these days. Maybe if you haven't heard of this, this is the idea of, of people turning to their inner thoughts through meditation and allowing their free-flowing thoughts to inform them of truth. And in reality, this is just another form of mysticism wrapped in Christian language. So with the seemingly endless flow of, of social media, of YouTube, podcast, things like that, it's easier today than it's ever been for heresy to be accidentally, unintentionally absorbed by well-meaning Christians. And this is where it is so important that we gather together, as we have today, to hear the pure teaching of his word. So much of preaching these days tends to be influenced by Scripture rather than guided, constrained, and driven by Scripture. And it's our desire here at North Hills, and it should be your desire as a congregation, to to hold to only the pure teaching of God's Word. And that's what we endeavor to do today, to have the accountability that comes from the corporate body gathered to hear the teaching of God's Word. So with that as an introduction, let's, let's look to Jude uh, verse 4. I promise at some point today I'm going to say chapter 4 or chapter 5 or something like that. Forgive me, there is one chapter in Jude. It has 25 verses. And I know that the, the typical way of operating for, for our church is to bore down into a single verse or maybe a single phrase. But um, don't tell John, but I'm going to read four verses today. We're going to tackle verses 4 through 7. So let's read there together in the book of Jude, verses 4 through 7. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all these things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now with this passage today, I'd like for us to take basically a two-part approach to this. First of all, I'd like to examine verse 4 and, and take a closer look at these ungodly people that Jude is warning us of. And then having done that, we'll look to the next three verses as three Old Testament examples of judgment, which Jude cites as evidence for the condemnation he is associating with these ungodly men in verse 4. So 5, 6, and 7, I want to tie those back to verse 4. Okay, So beginning in verse 4, we see certain persons. And while these certain persons remain anonymous in the text, uh, there, there, is, there are certainly some things that we can learn about them. While their identity is anonymous, their actions and their characteristics are made known to us. First of all, we see that they are ungodly. 
And this would suggest actions that they are engaging in that are contrary to the declared standards of God. We see also that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Some translations might read pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And in so doing this, they are actually denying the Lord. While these certain persons are not given a title or a designation as a group, um, they are reminiscent of, of a particular group that we see in the book of Revelation. Um, if, if you've read the letters that, that John wrote to the seven churches, you'll, you'll recognize that the churches in Ephesus and Pergamum, those letters mention a group called the Nicolaitans, whose actions were defined by gross immorality and idolatry. And the, this is exactly the type of behavior, I think, that's in play here. While the group is not the same, we don't, we're not calling these Nicolaitans necessarily. We, we do see a consistency in these warnings. The fact that they crept into the church would suggest to us a certain degree of stealth. In other words, it's possible that these, these corrupting influences, these false teachers or these people holding to false doctrine, uh, might have come in under the guise of Christianity. And we see that today in, in, in the false teaching all around us. It's not uncommon for groups to hold to a veneer of Christianity, maybe even hold to a confession of faith that would identify them, at least externally, as believers. And, and all the while, they would be holding to teachings that were inconsistent with God's Word. Well, the next phrase in the text that I want to draw our attention to is this idea that they were marked out for condemnation. Um, I think we can read that um, very clearly as they were not at all surprising to God. While this may be surprising to our church to learn of false teachers and those who purvey false doctrine, God is never, ever taken by surprise by the action of wicked men. Two weeks ago, uh, we went to great lengths to identify the called as being those who God is sovereign over and is Lord of their lives. But is any less sovereign over the, the evil ones, over these in this chapter? I would argue no. Um, the, those who are unbelievers are just as much controlled by and, and fenced in by God as believers are. We're reminded of Proverbs 16.4, which reads, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So as we talk about false teachers today, as we examine these, uh, these men who would introduce error, let's not be pessimistic. Let's, let's call them to remembrance. Let's call, them, let's call them to our attention, but at the same time understanding that they are also within the control of God and will be prevented from ultimately damaging his, his church. Well, as we look at these, at these men mentioned in verse 4 of Jude, I'm reminded of the reality that there are essentially two types of corruption that faced the early church, and I guess maybe to some extent still today. Um, in the early church, we saw the Judaizers, which would be um, people who were committed to the legalism of the old Ju Judaic way of life, compared to the paganizers, who would be Gentiles saved, or, or maybe some Jews, but primarily Gentiles who were saved into the church and could not let go of the pagan influences of their past. So they would be the ones that were likely to bring in uh, the type of false teaching that we're looking at here with sensuality and licentiousness. Well, for the Judaizers, the example, the, the first example, and maybe the best example we have of this is in the book of Acts, chapter 15. We won't turn there right now, but this is an example of a group of Jewish believers who were holding that circumcision was necessary for their 
uh, newly found brothers in Christ, the Gentiles, to come into the church. They were setting up almost a gateway into the church through Jewish tradition. And, of course, this led to the very first church council in Jerusalem, which included Paul, James, Peter, and others. And their determination of this council was that the, the, the old law, the aspects of the old law that were fulfilled by Christ, were not to be applied to uh, the Gentile believers. And, and we saw basically their conclusion is Jesus is enough. So this, this error of legalism that we still find today from time to time, uh, the error of that is not recognizing the sufficiency of Christ. It's very important that we keep that in mind. Now, the paganizers, on the other hand, this would be the group that's more in view in verse, uh, in verse 4 of Jude. This is a group that's marked by licentiousness. And that term licentiousness might be uh, a new one to you. Think license, licentiousness, license. It would be people who view their grace in Christ as a license to sin. Technically, they would be known as antinomians, people who are opposed to the law. Anti, opposed, nomos, law. Antinomians are opposed to any law that would restrict their immorality. Essentially, it would be like the person today who might say, I've been saved, therefore I can do whatever I want to do. They, they abuse the grace of the security we know in Christ and treat it as a license to sin. Let me say just categorically, this is a tragic misunderstanding of the gospel. And Paul speaks against this uh, directly in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase or abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So simply put, an accurate understanding of salvation will dispel any notion of antinomianism. A true understanding of what has happened to you upon your conversion will keep you from this error. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So as we deal with this misunderstanding of antinomianism, it is crucial that we recognize the importance, the necessity of regeneration in salvation. If people have not been born again, they are not Christian, regardless of the statement they make, regardless of what they, what they claim to believe. Okay? It's not a matter of their claiming to believe. It's about God claiming them as his own through the power of regeneration. Now, Obviously, we will still feel the weight of our flesh, even as believers. Um, when we fall into temptation, though, we don't celebrate that. We don't say, oh, well, yeah, no big deal, I'm saved. That's not our reaction to sin. When we see sin in our personal lives, we grieve over that sin. It burdens us. Why? Because we have died to that sin. We're no longer defined by that sinful character that we have upon our birth. If I could just issue as stern a warning as possible. Please hear me. If you are claiming the name of Christ, if you call yourself a believer, and yet you are not bothered by your sin, then you have every reason to question whether or not you are in the faith. Please hear that. I'm not trying to, to create doubt in anyone's mind, but I am trying to clearly express to you that when you are regenerated, when you are changed, you no longer desire the wickedness of the flesh. And if you have that within you, if you're comfortable with your sin, if you're not grieved over your sin, please take a moment and consider whether or not you truly are a child of God. So the second uh, part of this brings us to three examples of the judgments God poured out upon those in the Old Testament 
who demonstrated the, uh, the type of error that he's associating with these false teachers in Jude 4. We're going to look at the disbelief of God by ethnic Israel in verse 5. Then we're going to talk about the disobedience of the fallen angels in verse 6. That one will be fun. And then we'll look at verse 7 at the disdain for God by the Sodomites. So let's turn our attention to verse 5, please. It says there, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, just to get this context, let's think about the Exodus and the Passover. In each of these examples we're going to look at, they're all going to be very, very familiar to a Jewish audience. In fact, the exodus from Egypt is, is one of the most um, defining definitional events in, uh, in the history of Israel. Today, the Passover is still celebrated some 3,000 years later as, as the, the Jewish people remember the time that God brought them out of bondage in Egypt. And we're told here that these, uh, the, these people who were brought out of Egypt, some of them actually were destroyed because of their lack of belief. And I want to talk about the ramifications of that. Before we get to it, though, I do want to mention one textual variant in this passage that, that might already be causing some questions in some of your minds. Most of you are going to have a translation that reads uh, essentially just as, as mine did, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. But some of you who are reading the ESV or maybe the Christian Standard might see that in this phrase, uh, the, the proper noun Jesus is used as the one who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, these types of textual variants are not uncommon. Um, in, in this case, this one is significant because what we have is a New Testament writer speaking to, speaking back to the Old Testament and clarifying a certain point. This is not the only time this happens, but if you have a different reading of that, that's, uh, that is why. There are uh, really no reasons for us to be bothered by this. Um, our doctrine of the uh, eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, the fact that, that Jesus was never created, he's always been in existence, and the fact uh, of our doctrine of the Trinity really does not make this an issue for us. We're, we're able to see very easily Jesus popping up in the Old Testament in different places. We see a number of occasions where the second person of the Trinity is active in salvation in the Old Testament. So as we look at the content of this verse, let's, you know, regardless of your phraseology in the translation, the primary focus that I want us to turn our attention to is the idea that the same Lord who delivered ethnic Israel out of Egypt is the one who condemned and punished those who did not believe, okay? When, when one is saved, it is important to note that when you're truly saved, you are saved from the wrath of God by the grace of God, through the Son of God, and for the glory of God. So what we see in this passage is this understanding that there was a general type of deliverance to the nation of Israel, but we draw a distinction between the general deliverance of the nation and the specific deliverance, the ultimate salvation of individuals. And this is going to be very important, regardless of the, the fact that the Jewish nation had experienced the favor of God. Even though God had decreed that the Messiah would come from the house of Israel, this did not exempt individuals from their responsibility to trust and believe in God. 
Jude points this out to us in this example, but also Paul issues a similar warning in 1 Corinthians. And I'd like to go there, 1 Corinthians 10. Let's let Paul basically enlighten this text in Jude for us just a little bit. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'd like to use this passage, the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, as a bit of an explanation of this event that Jude is referring us back to. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now just pause right there for just a second. This is yet another example of Jesus Christ being identified back in the Old Testament as the agent of salvation. Okay, so just another sort of consistent pattern that we've already observed in Jude. Continuing on, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, Remember, all, 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 all experienced the general grace of God, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, we're not going to turn to this right now, but Rome, uh, sorry, Numbers 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14, gives a detailed account of this apostasy within the wilderness and, and the fact that so many of the of the people that he had brought out of the nation of Egypt out of bondage actually died in the wilderness if you'll remember there were 12 spies sent into Canaan 10 came back with a negative report and had no faith in God the two that believed were Joshua and Caleb correct yes and the unfaithful spies Beyond giving a pessimistic report, they actually stirred up the nation of Israel against the two positive report guys, against Joshua and Caleb, to the point that they wanted to stone them. Okay, So we have not just a, a passive unbelief, but an active unbelief that agitates against the will of God. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that said, God has given us this, let's go get it. Okay, They were the only two that demonstrated true faith in, in God. And, of course, God's displeasure resulted in all of those who were 20 and older dying in the wilderness and never having the opportunity to enter into the rest of God in Canaan. Well, verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 10, to finish this out, Now these things happened as an example for us so that we would not crave evil, the evil things as they also craved. So we see Paul taking the same approach as Jude in using the, the ancient Israelites as an example of disbelief and that there was no inherited righteousness for them. That there's no such thing as, as belief that's passed on. And if I could issue another maybe personal warning, if you are trusting in and if your hope of salvation is based on some type of religious tradition or some family association, you have no reason to think that you are saved. There is no such thing as inherited salvation. The Jewish people saw this, and I'm afraid today many people put their faith in, in some type of cultural Christianity. That's what makes cultural Christianity such a, a cruel delusion because people have this sense that, oh, I, um, I live in a Christian nation or, or I grew up in a Christian home or maybe I was born a Christian. I've heard that one before. I, I know one person who's told me that they're confident in their salvation because they were baptized both in the Catholic Church and the Baptist Church. So they're, they're covered, right? 
we, we laugh, and, and it is a, a humorous thing on some level, but it's also a very tragic thing to realize that there are people who have embraced the type of false teaching that Jude is warning of in verse 4 to the point that they are gleefully and confidently progressing to their, to their ultimate demise. So please, please, please examine your faith. If it's rooted in anything other than the perfect work of Christ, uh, it, is, it is time for you to repent and turn to him. Okay, verse 6. We see in verse 6 the disobedience of fallen angels. But let's, let's start by reading that. Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now this is a difficult passage. Of course, it references Genesis 6. If you want to go ahead and start turning, we're going to go there in just a minute. But when this event is referenced in Jude 6 and again in 2 Peter, there seems to be an assumption of knowledge on the part of those that that Jude and Peter are writing to. And that is because a Jewish audience would have been far more familiar with this than than we are. Uh, Within the the Jewish uh, writings that date back to the 400 years of prophetic silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, those writings, non-canonical, non-authoritative, but still very informative to the Jewish people, they would have read about this event again and again. Writings such as the Testament of Reuben, the Book of Jubilees, the Testament of Naphtali, and of course, First Enoch, all speak in greater detail to this event of these angels being bound. And we're not going to look specifically at any of these uh, non-scriptural writings, but I just want to point this out so that we understand that particularly Enoch is informing the understanding that the audience of Jude would have. He would be relying on things that they know from their, their Jewish tradition. Okay, But for us, our account of this is taken from Genesis 6. So let's look to the first five verses of Genesis 6. It says there, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. When the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Okay, now, as we look at this passage that Jude is referring to, there are at least three points uh, or three positions that we can take in regard to this. And I'm, I'm going to be very, very humble in, in teaching this section because there are people um, with, with much greater time in the Word than me who come to different opinions on this. As one pastor said, this is not a passage of Scripture to go start a new church over. Um, it's a, it is a confusing passage in some sense, and it's a, a passage that God has chosen in His providence to not fully explain to us. Okay, But the, the three primary positions are, one, that the sons of God in this passage represent the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men would represent the ungodly line of Cain. Now, you'll recall when Cain slew Abel early on that God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth. 
right? So that, that's, the, that's the idea, that somehow there's a godly line of people through Seth, and there's an ungodly line of people through Cain, and that the sin in, in, in view here was that the ungodly line was intermarrying with the godly line. That one um, is, uh, has some interesting exegetical basis within the text of Genesis, but it really fails to consider the implications of Jude and Second Peter. There's a lot of problems with that view. In fact, there's a lot of problems with all of these views. And uh, that's what makes handling this text so difficult. The second view of this passage would simply be that the sons of God are referring to a line of powerful warrior kings from the past. This one, uh, in in my humble opinion as as I've read through this, requires way too much speculation. And again, it ignores certain elements from Scripture, both in the Genesis account and in the New Testament references. The third view, which is probably the predominant view, is the view that the sons of God in this passage are, in fact, angels. And uh, I'll I'll sort of explain it this way. The book of Enoch, which is not um, authoritative but is still informative, specifically states that these sons of heaven or sons of God were, in fact, angels. And their sin was that they left their proper domain, their proper abode, and uh, intermarried with and reproduced with uh, human, human daughters. Now, for those of you who know your Bible, you're immediately uh, coming to an objection right now. And that objection is, well, I thought Jesus said that angels neither marry or are given in marriage, right? We've heard that. Well, that's partly true. His actual statement was that the angels in heaven neither marry or are given in marriage. So there's really no, uh, no problem between Jesus and Jude. Jesus is talking about the angels who were obedient. Obedient angels, in fact, do not marry. They are not given in marriage. And in heaven, we will be like those angels. Uh, the angels in view here are those fallen angels who have left their proper place, who have left their abode and reassigned themselves to a role that God never intended. And that's the sin, according to this third interpretation. That's the sin of these angels. If we continue with that interpretation and we allow the implications of that to flow, we'll, we'll understand that human reproduction is one of the key features of beings who are created in the image of God, that's us, and we have the potential to perpetuate his glory generation after generation after generation with more and more generations of God-bearers, of image-bearers of God. So the sin that these angels are held in chains for, who are currently bound, is a sin of rebellion against God in the form of interference with the natural reproduction of his image bearers. And these disobedient angels, what they attempted to do was actually corrupt the physical means by which God would bring about the Messiah. It's a very serious, serious sin. Of course, they failed in this attempt because there is nothing any created being could ever do to thwart the plan of God, but the seriousness of their action can't be overlooked. And it's important to note that as Jude draws our attention to this, he's pronouncing the same type of condemnation on those who would corrupt the church's teaching today. The connection to the ungodly men of Jude is is very, very significant. False teaching, when allowed to continue, will always produce a fraudulent gospel that cannot save. So in the same way as the fallen angels were interfering with God's perfect plan of redemption and bringing about a Messiah, those who teach falsely in, in churches today are interfering with the gospel, which is God's attempt to bring people to himself. I shouldn't say attempt. God's way of bringing people to himself that he always accomplishes. So um, let's continue. Uh, verse 7. 
I, I will make one last observation regarding verse 6. I think it's important for us to recognize that when creatures do not or will not be controlled and contained by obedience to God's word and to his teaching, then they will in fact be contained and controlled by his wrath. So it, it's, there's never an, an option for a created being to step out of in disobedience the realm God has placed him in. We will either be controlled by our faith and our belief, and we will be restrained by that, or we will be restrained by the wrath of God. Verse 7. The last example from the Old Testament that we see is the disdain that was uh, directed at God by the Sodomites. Verse 7 reads, uh, referring back to the angels, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the first thing that we notice here is the comparison between the unnatural actions of the Sodomites and the unnatural action of the fallen angels. We see that there's a consistency there between their sin. Both were guilty of pursuing unnatural sexuality, all in violation of God's created order. And before we examine this third illustration, I'd like for us to take just a moment and turn to the account of, of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. There's a lot of connection to Genesis in this chapter. Please turn to chapter 19 of Genesis, chapter 19. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that at Abraham's pleading, two angels were sent in the form of men to rescue righteous Lot. The fact that he's called righteous Lot is a very interesting phrase that we don't have time to get into today, maybe, maybe for another time. But they were to rescue righteous Lot from the impending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the angels arrived at Lot's house, they initially opted to sleep out in the open square, out in, in, in the city square in the middle of town. And Lot wisely uh, and providentially insisted that they come inside because Lot was well aware of the wickedness of the city and what would happen to those men if they slept in the open. So Genesis 19.4 picks up our story here. But before they, that's those in Lot's house, had laid down, the men of the city, men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. And just to be abundantly clear while still being uh, discreet, that verb know there is not meaning they wanted to shake hands and introduce themselves. This was an act of carnal and an, an act of carnality and an act of violence, actually. Continuing verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance. He shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, this is the, the men outside, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Just a brief insertion here. These people were so offended that an outsider, Lot, would come into them and have a condemning attitude toward their wickedness that they said, we'll deal with you later. Okay? They, they were gravely offended by Lot's suggestion that they were doing something improper. Continuing on, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. That would be the angels. The angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. 
And then the angel struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that, get this, they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Okay, now, when we, when we just take a minute and pause here, we, I think we get calloused a little bit to, to some of the, the, the stories within Scripture. We hear them again and again and again. And, and, of course, our culture does nothing to sensitize us to evil. But we, we grow a little bit hardened, I think, to, to a full appreciation of, of the depravity that's in play here. First of all, every man in the city was engaged in this wickedness. Every man, to a man. We see that Lot, although he was righteous, offered a, a despicable thing, and that he offered his daughters to pacify these men. And then we see, even after having been blinded by the angels, the men outside the door were unwavering in their pursuit of immorality. They simply exhausted themselves, groping blindly for the door so that they might carry out the evil intentions of their heart. The image of this people completely turned over to their depraved nature is a serious, serious thing. But it's not something that we should look at with a haughty spirit or a, or a, a judgmental attitude. Because the reality is these men were simply turned over to the inherent sin that was within them. The inherent sin that every human being fallen among Adam has within them. We have to view the grace of God in this way. God is continually restraining, restraining evil. He is, even you, you identify the worst um, serial killer imaginable, or Adolf Hitler, or, or pick your favorite villain. Even those people are restrained by God in the extent that they can do damage and evil. God, while he is never the driver of evil, he is always the restrainer of evil. And what we see in instances like the fallen angels, like the, the children of Israel who experienced the grace of God without believing, and now like these sodomites, what we see here is God preventing, preventing, preventing evil, and then at some point people being turned over to the sinful desires that are within them. And we need to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. We need to recognize that we are not holy. We have nothing to boast of. It's only the grace of God that we can, uh, that we can praise because of the fact that we're not turned over to, over to the same depravity as the men of Sodom. Well, we see that these three examples are, are very harsh. They're, they're very severe. But they are specifically cited by Jude under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as examples of what happens and the judgment that awaits those who would pervert the purity of God's teaching through his church. We notice with the Sodomites in, in, in verse 7, uh, the, the last part of that verse, that they are an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, now notice that. They're, they're, the, the word eternal is specific in this case. The the reality is the, the, the burning of Sodom eventually burned out. If you go to the Middle East today, you don't still see smoke rising from this. It eventually burned out. But it was representative of a judgment that is eternal, that is continually burning for those who reject and turn away God. Well, in conclusion, and I appreciate your attention, uh, Jude 4 has warned us of those who would pollute the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
And then we saw the characteristics of those who crept in to the church. These characteristics involved primarily sensuality and immorality. And when we think about fallen false teachers today, the, the, the thing that always gets them is immorality and oftentimes greed, right? So those two things tend to go together. We were given three examples in the Old Testament of the ungodly, uh, of the judgments, I should say, that, that await these types of ungodly men. We saw the disbelief of Israel. We saw the disobedience of the fallen angels. And then we saw the disdain of the sodomites. All of these experience the wrath of God, as will anyone who, as Jude warned, turn his grace into licentiousness and deny the Lord Jesus. We can see that God takes very, uh, very seriously any attempts to introduce false teaching, any attempt to interfere with his plan of redemption. We see also error all around us, but we're reminded we do not have to worry because it is God who is in control. And as surely as God poured out wrath upon the unbelievers of Israel, the fallen angels, and those of Sodom, he will surely bring down judgment on false teachers today. It is our job as believers, as followers of Christ, to commit to faithfully following him, faithfully teaching his word, and faithfully uh, trusting in his son. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word today. We are grateful for the truths that it contains, and we are humbled, Lord, by the grace that you've demonstrated to your creation. We thank you, God, for the common grace that we all experience, but even more so, we are thankful for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We, we pray today, Father, that if there's one here that has not yet repented and turned in belief to you, that today would be the day that you change their heart. Today would be the day that you bring them to a point of, of belief and a point of repentance. God, be with us as we go through this service, as we take communion, as we turn our hearts and our minds, our attention uh, to the truth of, of, of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, as we take the elements, God. Conform us more deeply to you. Continue to reform us around the principles of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.